0: I got kind of blissed out there. Um, Is anyone cold? Okay. Then we won't change a thing. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts. Growing up Every Sunday morning, I would polish my shoes before church. We had to look our best for church. Uh, Besides, I had a grandfather who told my mother that you can judge a man by his shoes. Now, if she lived by that rule, she would have never dated my dad. Uh, I don't think he ever, ever paid more than $10 for a pair of shoes. But um, Paul, as we saw last week, uses clothing as a metaphor. And uh, the changing of clothing, putting off the old clothing, putting on new clothing, has to do with something more internal, our values and attitudes than our behavior. So discard the old lifestyle, Paul said. He, He said, put off the old self and become your new self in Jesus. I don't know. I think today we'd use a different metaphor because clothing seems so external anyway. Uh, However, uh, Peter, in his first epistle, makes a similar point. He says, do not let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, Which, in God's sight, is very precious. Yeah, because that's where God looks. God looks at the heart. Um, You know, with God, we're like two-year-olds. We come to Him. We think we're getting away with something. You know that He doesn't know, Um, but He sees the chocolate around our lips, and He said, "You know, I know what you've been doing." Uh, So He's not taken in by. Anything we do externally. And if we try to do a lot of external things and say, look, God, I've, I've been fasting lately. I've been tithing. I've been uh, sharing my faith with others. He says, but all of that doesn't mean anything to me unless your heart is right and it isn't. So he you know, He goes after the heart. And, and Peter says, make your heart beautiful. Make your heart beautiful beautiful. Don't worry so much about the exterior. You know, there's not a whole lot we can do about that anyway. I mean, you know, living in a, a, a fashion-conscious culture, uh, there are minor improvements we can make, but really, if you think about the people you love and, and are closest to you that mean the most to you, they have beautiful hearts. They're, they're internally beautiful. That's what draws you. And the external is irrelevant. Anyway, um, Paul provides a list of virtues that belong in our ensemble, uh, changes in our spiritual apparel. And today we're going to be begin working our way through this with the very first one. Now, Paul's concern at the start, before he enters the list, is that we know who we are. And uh, not just your name and your address or your occupation, but who we actually are. Now, if we're talking about our lives being transformed, shedding the old skin, you know, making room for the growth of love and goodness and beauty, can you see why it's important that we, we know who we are? You know, we're going to to dress this person that we are in clothing that matches, in clothing <clears throat> that works. <clears throat> Jesus' critique of the Pharisees indicates they, they really did not know who they were because they, they thought that they were righteous and God was pleased with them. They are doing everything they are supposed to be doing. <clears throat> Jesus said, well, yeah, but you worship him with your lips, but your heart's far from him. And again, it, it's the heart that God is concerned with. In fact, uh, his most brutal attack on, on the Pharisees comes in Matthew chapter 23, just you know, line after line. He says, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. What's in the heart really does matter. And sometimes I think, well, it doesn't doesn't really matter because nobody knows. I'm not hurting anyone else. It's just you know my thoughts that I'm with there's no problem here um, but God says there is a problem it's 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 one that only I can see but it's one that I'm really concerned about. Let's clean it up now if all we had if all Paul gave us was a list, then it would seem like our lives are rule based and then we'd be like the Pharisees you know am I Am I keeping the rules? You know, uh, rule number one: don't step on a crack. You'll break your mother's back. Um, don't want to do that. Uh, but but that's it's with rules that people make themselves pious without transformation, and it also gives them something to judge other others by. Oh, well, you're not keeping the rules. So I can judge you as less righteous, less spiritual than myself. But God works from the inside out. And so our, our virtues express who we are, what we are. So that's why Paul begins there, because who we are really matters. And these virtues should be an expression of that. So it's like, well, now, now that we have performed the surgery on your eyes, we expect you to see better. And as you walk around, to not bump into things anymore. Uh, it just goes with, what, with the process of God healing and, and restoring and recovering and transforming within. Edward Loos, in his commentary on Colossians says, in this list, the accent is not placed on a certain disposition, but on the action through which the new self reveals its identity. To be sure, were it only out of our own resources, we would be incapable of such actions. All these virtues are fruits of the spirit. So what Paul is saying is God is really working this into you, and now we want to cooperate by living in these things. In this particular instance, because Paul has a lot to say about who we are. We're sons and daughters of God. We're no longer slaves, but we're free in him. But in this particular instance, he emphasizes three words, chosen, chosen, holy, and beloved, chosen. Now, if you can do this, imagine growing up in an orphanage. And if you can't imagine it, then think of Orphan Annie or some movie or some book that you've read in which there are orphans. And every time a married couple comes to the orphanage, Each one of the orphans is inwardly hoping, I hope they choose me. I hope I am chosen. And Paul is telling us orphans, you're chosen. First of all, you need to know that God chose you. I think all of us need to know that we're wanted. Somebody wants me somebody enjoys being with me somebody gives a damn about me you know enough to call or text or or, or seek me out and you are wanted we are wanted we are chosen jesus told his disciples you did not choose me; but I chose you. Well, I thought I chose to be a disciple. Um, I thought I, I made a decision for Christ, and He says, "Oh no, long before that." And, and and you know, my question, just because of who I am, is, or you know, the old me, why'd you choose me? You know, you've got a bad picker, Lord. Uh, Have you ever heard that expression? It's like, um, why me? Um, And he says, I couldn't help it. I just loved you so much. I'm not saying you weren't a rascal. I'm not saying that, you know, you didn't try my patience at times. but But still, even then, I just loved you so much. What could I do? And that's God's crazy love. That's his love that won't let go. You know, this is the one stalker we want in our lives. You know, he's just—he's everywhere we are. It's like, oh, there he is again. You know, he's like following me to work. He—he knows my phone number. He's got my address. Um, You've been chosen holy. This is a difficult one because we have all kinds of wrong ideas about holiness. But let's just say in this context, is God put some mark on us. You know, not exactly like a branding iron, but he identifies us as his people. And we belong to him. That's what holiness means. Anything that was devoted to God and, and taken into the sanctuary became Holy that the magic of the holiness of God's presence in the sanctuary penetrated that spoon, that bowl, the instruments used for uh, stoking the flames in the, in the altar. All of that was holy. And we are also, because we belong to God, we're gods now. And Pretty much exclusively. And we're beloved. Grendel's wife, Monica, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, sent me a link to a YouTube video of, I'll say, Henry Nowen. I think I'm supposed to say Henri Nowen. And that just sounds so much more like him. but. Um, He was at the Crystal Cathedral uh, during the Robert Schuller era, and he was giving a series of messages on the Beloved. I just this week finished reading a biography of Henri Nouwen, and the biographer says that it was towards the end of his life that he became fascinated by and enraptured with The realization that we are God's beloved. And he is someone who for a long time wrestled with feeling unloved, forgotten by his best friends, uh, not fully accepted by his family. Um, He was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, very popular author, wrote tons of books, spoke in many places, was beloved by many, but he did not know that. He did not experience it. But he he was drawing closer and closer to Jesus. Now, he did not know that he was dying or that he had just four or five years left. But he wrote this book, The Life of the Beloved. And in it, he says, we are the beloved. We are intimately loved long before our parents, teachers, spouses, and friends loved or wounded us. That's the truth of our lives. That's the truth I want you to claim for yourself. That's the truth spoken by the voice that says, you are my beloved. He, if he were here today, would tell you, I want to get this into your heart. God is saying, you Are my beloved and if you can hear that in God's voice right now then you're right where Paul wants you to be to hear what comes next this is what Paul is telling us this is who we are chosen holy beloved so at the top of the list, I'm sorry, I just thought of Project Runway. Um, <laughs> my wife and her sister watch it. <clears throat> they're, uh, both of them, they're an anomaly. They love watching football. We had to watch the Super Bowl. I was, uh-huh. you know, I don't need the stress. Uh, especially when the Rams are playing, because they're capable of any kind of loss or, or fortunate wins. But both of them, they have to want And Bonnie, my sister-in-law, she's got the stats on all the players. She can tell you the name of the quarterback of every team. She can tell you the MVP for the last five years. I mean, they're really into it. And Project Runway. So, you know, go figure. <laughs> It's a mystery to me. At the top of the list of our apparel, Paul says, put on compassionate hearts. The Greek language behind these two words, compassionate heart, is colorful. Both of them refer to internal organs, our inward parts. When the Bible makes reference to the viscera, the, the kidneys, the heart, the, the bowels, it, it never means those terms literally. But it is looking for and reaching down into the most sensitive organs of our emotions. When we say the loss of my friend was gut wrenching, we do the same thing. We go to some place inside that knots up or where, where we feel our agony. It goes right down into our internal organs, or it seems to. It affects our respiration. It affects our heart rate. It affects organ function because this very busy vagus nerve is stressed and is sending these messages to our body's organs that respond. And and when they, they were able to tell in their deepest feelings, that was here. And both of these words, heart and compassionate, refer to the innards. Peter O'Brien, in his commentary on Colossians, said, Paul is expressing strongly and forcefully what concerns the personality at the deepest level, especially in our capacity for loving. Okay, so (sighs) my grandson, Calum, was sick again this week. He's had almost as many childhood illnesses as I, and his his almost always the same symptoms: high fevers, listlessness, and uh, food tastes funny. If he tries to eat, it comes back up. Uh, you know, for me, it's déjà vu, but at the same time, it's so painful. The days that I spend with him, that he's like that, I'm nervous, I'm on edge, I keep taking his temperature. Uh, and on top of it all, just the week before, he broke his wrist, jumping on a trampoline with his cousins. So here he is, this little guy with his arm in, a, in not a cast yet, but a sling or a splint, and uh, this fever, and he's just, Lying there, nodding off, coming back. And I ache inside for him. I I would love to change places. I can handle this. He, you know, okay, so the deepest feelings, especially when it comes to love because love just takes us over and we can't help it. I have a friend who lives in San Luis Obispo. He owns a a cleaning company. He and his partner adopted a baby who was born 24 years ago next week, this coming week. And they loved Josh. They doted on him. They cared for him. Okay, they're a gay couple. When Josh was 13 years old, Todd sent me this, this email and he's really worried. He said, You know, Josh, you know, did something and I really don't know what to do about it. I don't know how to handle it, how to, how to talk to him about it. But this girl from school, called him and identified her as the mother, pardon me, uh, this mother called Todd and identified herself as the mother of a daughter in the same class as Josh. And Josh had sent, sent her a text. And it was a kind of a typical boyhood thing. Uh, so-and-so, I think you're really pretty and you have nice boobs. So Todd did not know what to do with this. <laughs> and I laughed like you. And I said, Todd, you got a real boy on your hand. You know, this, this, is, this is what, you know, the rest of us are, are made of. And you just have to take it easy. You know, just... Talked about what's appropriate communication with the opposite sex and and why that's not appropriate and that it's okay to express your feelings but you know not everything. So um, when Josh was about 18 or 19 years old, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and he suffered with it. He did not just live with it or deal with it. Uh, He was medicated. He hated hated the medications. He decided he was done with it, and he took his life, three years ago. And um, all of a sudden, Todd, his dad, was sending me messages again, texts, and photos of his son Josh, because another wave of grief went over him. And he said, I think sometimes I just want to die. He has a very successful business there in San Luis Obispo, a very solid relationship with his partner. And he's a beautiful person. They, they both are. And they have touched many lives with, with their own witness to, to Jesus. And he's suffering. He's coming out of it now the sun's beginning to come out for him again but that's love my friends and you never ever ever get over the death of a child maybe you know there are other people we just never get over their death why because we love them and our body holds on to them and if something reaches our body that reminds us of them. The profile of someone else or the aroma, the the fragrance of them. Or thinking about their voice or wishing I could call mom to get that recipe from her. Whatever it is, it goes to those deep places where love resides in us. These same two words for heart and compassion in Philippians chapter 1 are translated affection and sympathy. So they can have a, a, a range of meanings, but all emotions, longings, sometimes translated mercies and empathy. And behind these words is the very nature of God Revealed in Jesus. When God gave Moses the fullest revelation of him possible, anything more, and Moses Moses would have been fried. He he, he did not allow Moses to see him, but he passed by him. He, he allowed Moses to see the after, the, the sheen after God passed through, and God spoke to him his revelation. The Lord. The Lord. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. First word, merciful, is one of these words when the Hebrew was translated into Greek. Compassionate, merciful. In the book of Lamentations, we read, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Or great is your faithfulness. The, the favorite verse of many. Paul refers to God as the Father of mercies, using the same language as here, and the God of all comfort. Now, in verse 13, Paul's going to tell us something about forgiveness, and he's, he's going to define our forgiveness in terms of its quantity and quality. And that it is to be identical with God's forgiveness of us. So how much do I forgive? And what's the quality of my forgiveness? Well, I forgive you, but... And however freely God has forgiven us, however much he's dismissed the wrongs we've done to him, that's to be the standard of our forgiveness. Really, we just let go of it completely. It's not an issue anymore. we, we empty of it our, of ourselves as much as possible. Of course we 're not God, but as much as humanly possible, you let go and I, I believe that this is true of every one of the virtues that we are to have these virtues in the quantity and quality of, of, of how God is merciful and compassionate all of these virtues are reflected in the person of Jesus Christ he he is this list and we could say "Well, just be like Jesus and if you look at these words and think about how Jesus was with these words you say okay I got it I mean even the opening words chosen holy, beloved. Isn't that Jesus? Isn't that what we read about him? God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So if you need an example of a compassionate heart, well, when a leper came to Jesus and fell down in front of him and said, Lord, if you will, you can heal me. Moved with compassion, Mark tells us. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Or when Jesus saw the crowds that had come to hear him, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. There was a sinful woman who Jesus said her sins are many, but who loved him much and showered that love on him because she had been forgiven much. And then the adulteress that he would not condemn, though others were ranting for her execution. Jesus Christ is the incarnation of a compassionate heart. There's one more thing I want to say about this. And, okay, this is just... Well, maybe you, you you think I'm hair splitting here, but uh, so me. I'm a technician, all right, of Scripture. Nothing else. <laughs> Several places in the New American Standard Bible, it says Jesus felt compassion, and that always annoys me. What do you mean he felt compassion? For Jesus, compassion was never a mere feeling. He was compassionate. He was it. He, He was not just compassionate. He was compassion itself. God is love. So feelings come and go. They alternate through pity and condescension and disgust and contempt. But being... Compassionate, not feeling, but being compassionate is planted in a person's soul and it does not alternate. I believe that Shakespeare, one of his plays, said, love is not love that alters when alteration finds. Compassion is, the compassionate person has compassion as an automatic and consistent attitude and response to others. It's what everyone gets. When Jesus told his disciples how to love everyone, he said, love your enemies. Do something different. Let your love go where no one else's love goes. Love your enemies. The example that he gave them was God himself. And you will be sons and daughters of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. Have a compassionate heart, even as your father has a compassionate heart. We cannot give greater emphasis to what Paul is saying than that right there. In another place, Jesus says, the father causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust, and his son to shine on the good and the evil. In other words, his gifts are freely given to everyone regardless. And so is his love. So is his compassion. What we experience in God finds its home in us. And it reconfigures our inner parts. What's the opposite of a compassionate heart? Cold, Cold, the cold heart, the hard heart of scripture. A hard heart is one that cannot be moved. It doesn't change. It's like a stone. A hard heart can refer to stubbornness. And in that sense, it's related also to a stiff neck It can be unfeeling, never moved with pity or compassion. A hard heart can be dense, stuck in old paradigms, unable to see new things. Uh, The disciples should have discerned something in Jesus feeding thousands of people with just a few scraps of, of bread and a couple of fish. They should have seen something about Jesus in that. Mark says they did not understand his power to calm a storm um, be, pardon me, because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were dense. They weren't getting it. Jesus later will say to them, do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet understand? In uh, junior high school, I was a slow learner, got put in a special class. Uh, Part of my embarrassing past and my hatred for school uh, explained in one fell swoop. But uh, yeah, I was a slow learner. Jesus says to the disciples, O slow to faith. I'm that, too. And sometimes I have a dense heart. And God says, that's fine. You know, that's what the two-by-four is for. (laughs) Um, A compassionate heart is an open heart. You know, once we make a judgment about another person, we close the possibility of having a different perspective. It's like, well, I've already... Put them into this category, so now I know what they are, and I'm just not going to bother with it anymore. Uh, we cannot learn something new about them. Or if we hear it, our immediate response is denial. Well, they're probably faking it, you know, or what you heard is probably not accurate. The compassionate heart resists judgment. The open heart makes room for all the other virtues if you have a compassionate heart, well, you know, now you're ready for kindness and humility and forgiveness. The compassionate heart has room for peace and for understanding, even the desire to understand. I want to know better. Room for new information and insights. Room for God to do something new and unheard of. God can do something with a compassionate heart. He can do something that connects us to everyone else. Most everyone that you and I know can look at a photograph of a starving child or those sad, sad puppy commercials You know, with you know, animal shelters that I always change the channel because I can't take it. Um, but we can, we can look at these things and feel pity. You know, that's, that's why they're shown to us, to evoke pity. And normal, healthy human nature responds with that feeling of, of pity. That's what empathy is. But few of us can look into every single human face and feel compassion. Well, they deserved what they got. Or if they weren't such a mess, they, they wouldn't be in that situation. But that's the ultimate work that God does in his children is that we see through his eyes and feel compassion for every human person. And we don't have to know everything. I mean, sometimes that helps. Yeah, that that guy who was on my, my bumper the whole way through Ortega Highway and then... As he sped by when it turned into two lanes, honked and flipped me off. It's like, if I know that he was physically abused by his father from the time he was three years old on until he just ran away, that might help, you know. But we don't have to know the backstory. A compassionate heart can connect us with everyone and with everything. Uh, A tiny mustard seed matters because it shelters a mystery. A pinch of leaven, the birds of the sky, the lilies of the field. These are wild lilies in an overgrown field. These are not cultivated. They just spring up. the mustard seed not only contains the power in life of life and growth, but it's also a symbol of something that is infinite and eternal. And everything in our world is also a symbol. And it opens its mystery to the compassionate heart. To the heart that's open and and looking, and loving, and appreciating, that notices beauty, and as one of the early church fathers said, as it notices beauty, its spirit ascends upward to God. Simone Weil said something similar about when we feel the pleasure of beauty, we're experiencing the presence of God. Evagrius of a, a, very respected monk for a while from the 4th century, said that every created thing carried a revelation of God. And if you just contemplate it uh, enough, that revelation will come through. He says these, and, and, and by the way, the early church fathers, many of them believed that God wrote two books, the scriptures, of course, but also the book of nature. He's a creator, and that the book of nature speaks to us in a different kind of language, but it still speaks to us of God. As Paul says in Romans 1, that his uh, eternal nature and attributes are clearly revealed by the things that are seen. And Evagrius says all these created things he has produced as the letters of the alphabet, so to speak, by his power and wisdom That is to say, by his Son and the Spirit. All these created things they believed were for the non-believer who did not know the Scriptures, did not have the light of the Scriptures. They had the light of God's creation. And that was like an alphabet. Learn this alphabet. It will prepare you for the bigger revelation. Read God through the alphabet of created things. I just love that image, and that's why I'm harping on it. Olivier Clement said, the world is the gift of God. We must know how to perceive the giver through the gift. Move through the things of the world to the giver. And and a compassionate heart sees the world through new eyes. Okay, so now we have one more item to add to our wardrobe. Uh, The compassionate heart. And every piece of clothing that we put on, we put on for a reason. Uh, In another place, Paul will use the same metaphor in a very different way, put on the whole armor of God. And there's a reason for that. He says because you're going to engage in spiritual warfare, so you want to suit up. So what's the reason for putting on a compassionate heart? Why this particular... um, It's not a helmet. It's not a shield. The answer is in the first two verses of this chapter. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Well, you know, We have to deal with things on the earth, you know, issues. But don't let your mind be trapped there. Set your mind on things above. Now, I read this and my soul says, I want this. I I want to seek the things that are above, the, the transcendent things of God, the kingdom of God. I don't have to see God. An angel would work. Yeah, that's that's good And I can't get there. There's no rational road to it. There's no work at it and then you'll be rewarded with this. It's not how it works. But because of who I am, if I can have this compassionate heart, if I can say yes Lord, I accept that. I accept your work in me, that I can be this compassionate-hearted person. He will lift my mind to things above. So, how can my awareness rise above my anxieties and distractions? Is it even possible for my mind to transcend these realities that I bump into every day? It is, if, First of all, I allow God to share with me his own compassionate heart and conform my heart to be the same. Would you please stand? Now may God bless us, keep away all evil, work into us a heart of compassion, and bring us ever closer to himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.